0: 2022 ACB Virtual D.C. Leadership Meetings will be held Saturday, March 12th through Tuesday, March 15th. Registration is $20 for ACB members and $30 for non-members. ACB members were sent a discount code via email. If you are an ACB member and did not receive the discount code, please call the Minneapolis office at 612-332-3242. Registration closes March 9th. Visit acb.org for more information or register at https slash slash tinyurl.com slash 2022 DC leadership meetings.
1: This is Sunday Edition with Anthony. A news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affects all of us in and out of the ACB community.
2: All right, so welcome, welcome, welcome. and This is Sunday edition. Unfortunately, the storm took out my normal executive producer in the background and helping to co-host Mr. Byron. So we are sending lots of shout outs to New York where he may or may not be stuck for a few extra days. Um, Byron, if you're out there listening, miss you very much. But I have the honor and the privilege of splitting the duties up between two, a true Floridian and Sheila. What I think we came and bestow on Mr. Rick, an honorary Floridian title. She Young and Rick are helping me out today. Welcome to Sunday edition. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a little thrown off. I'm used to my horns. <laughs> um, I wanted to first announce to everybody out there, you might have seen it on the ACB list, but uh, I have finally created a Sunday edition uh, email. Of its own, and I'll be sending um all of my Sunday edition communication out through that. So if you'd like to reach the show or me or any guests um, that we don't share contact information, please use Sunday edition AC. Exactly the way it's spelled, with my initials at the end at a uh, at gmail.com. That's Sunday edition with my initials ac at gmail.com got a couple other announcements for everyone Um, office hours with Dan is back this week it'll be on Thursday also there is a town hall multicultural affair committee town hall with Dan and Cheryl Um, I believe that is also on Thursday uh, and they'll be talking about what um, what the organization is doing for diversity, equity and inclusion and adding on some accessibility stuff as well. So I am really, really looking forward to that. Um, Sheila, I sent you an announcement to read out and then I will do one more and we'll get to our
3: guests. Sure, yes, I will be happy to. I'm going to summarize this because it's quite an announcement. But starting February 2nd at 6 Eastern time, there will be The Artist Way, Creativity, um, A Spiritual Path to Higher Way of Creativity. It begins this Wednesday. Every Wednesday, it there is a book on BARD that is available. And I believe there's an email. If you have any questions, it is creativitycasey at gmail.com.
2: Isn't that awesome? Rick, Sheila, do you have any other announcements for stuff that you guys are doing this week that you want to float out there? I do. All right. Then my last announcement is about leadership. Um, the, the coupon code for ACB members has been sent out through Constant Contact, so registration is $20. If you're an ACP member, $30. If you are not, I recommend everybody go and get their slot in for leadership. Those meetings are very informative. And if you plan on doing legislative visits, we get a lot of great information, so please contact the Minneapolis office if you'd like to register. There's also an email within the email sent with the coupon code And Florida is stepping up to the plate again this year. We will be hosting through the three top um, ACB media shows Tuesday topics with Paul Edwards uh, visibilities with Terry Pacheco. And of course, Sunday edition here, Uh, Starting February 8th with Tuesday topics, we'll be talking effective communication. Um, He has invited somebody who is well known to the ACB um, audience, as well as, I believe, Jennifer Flat, Tony Stevens, and an exciting guest. That We will preview the day before through email, but there'll be some role plays as well to demonstrate effective communication. So that should be fun. Visibilities is going to tackle how to how to actually get your meetings, how to schedule your meetings, some useful tips and some templates to use for email to reach out to the legislative assistants. And then on Sunday, the 13th, Clark and Swatha will join me here on Sunday edition to announce the imperatives and following week there'll be some open community calls for folks to get as much information about the imperatives as possible but it'll all start on February 8th with Tuesday topics so we are calling this Leadership Week on ACB Media so I hope you guys will join all three shows and get all the valuable information and we will make this year's Legislative Week rock
3: I can I correct the email? I apologize i just looked at the email it is creativejourney.kc at gmail.com for any other information about that new artistic uh, journey
2: yeah and that's tayla allen and courtney smith Um, you know you guys are used to hearing them on the craft calls. But this is open for all artists, whether you're a musical artist, a poet, a painter. Um and apparently this book is really spiritual in an artistic, you know, of the artistic journey. So I think it's gonna be a really great call, folks. Definitely check it out. Um anyways, can 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 you guys hear me? I'm hearing all
3: kinds yes. of feedback. No, we're here you fine.
2: Okay, um, so I would like to introduce uh, back to Sunday Edition. They've both been here before. Lori Sharf and Pat Sheehan. Welcome back to Sunday Edition. It's good to be here. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you for having me back.
2: Thank you so much. So a little bit later on in the show, we'll also be talking to Tori and we'll be speaking about the APS, what I'm terming as victory in in, uh, New York. But um, we thought that it would be fun to give a little bit of history about the APS signals. And um, you guys bring in some fun facts, too, that I know I didn't know. So I'm I'm hoping that um, we surprise some of the folks out there. Lori, Pat, take it away. Ladies first, Lori, go ahead.
4: Uh, sure. So, we were we're going to begin by discussing what an accessible pedestrian signal is. I know very often people call them audible pedestrian signals. That term actually is not correct um, because it only provides. An, an audible signal is actually an engineering term that is a push button that beeps when you push it to say, you don't need to push me again. I know you're waiting for the light. So um, we found that out when uh, we were working in Nassau County and they put in an audible signal in and it was audible. It just told us that you push the button. So <laughs> the term you want to use is accessible pedestrian signal. And that provides both an auditory feature as well as a vibral tactile feature. And the vibral tactile feature is an arrow that is at the push button and points to where that particular push button points to the street where that particular push button controls. And if it is not a straight crossing, it should be angled to show you the direction of travel necessary to go across the street to kind of assist you in lining up for your crossing. Um, so installing these are very complex um, processes. And um, a push button should be located on the inner side of the um, you know not on the outer edge between where you would be standing between you and your parallel traffic so it should be basically if your parallel traffic was to your right it should be to your left uh, for example Um, so I think um, and as we know there are different types of intersections there are um, and different types of crossings. Um, For example, some of us that are my age in my mid forties and looking at the participant list, some of you are older. So you remember this when you used to be able to listen to the click of the light sequence changing. So you knew that the light was going to be changing in your favor and you could then wait for your parallel traffic surge. And Now we have um, what's called the um, exclusive pedestrian phase. And that is where, for example, you can cross in any direction and there's no traffic moving. So you would be able to, but you, you as a blind person don't know if you can't see the light and you can't see the walk sign. And I think it's important to remember that our sighted pedestrians, they can look at the light so they know what the drivers are being told by the light. They can look at the walk, don't walk sign, and they can look at the traffic. As blind and deafblind pedestrians, we don't get access to all of that. All we are asking for is access to the walk phase, to know when we can walk and know when we can't walk. And that's the purpose of inaccessible pedestrian signal is to give us equal access to that information um so there is that exclusive pedestrian phase and then there's what is called the lead pedestrian interval which is been around for a couple of years it's used a lot in big cities um and it's used to allow pedestrians to cross the street with somewhat advanced notice meaning that <clears throat> before your parallel traffic surge you can have anywhere between three to seven seconds to begin your to initiate your crossing so the the sighted pedestrian standing there looking at the walk don't walk sign gets that information but your parallel traffic has not moved yet Your Perpendicular traffic obviously has stopped. So, um, you know, basically, um, what happens in that is you're standing at the curb. If you don't have access to that walk, knowing when that walk phase or walk cycle starts, you're going to lose that cross time. There's what's called the walk interval, and that's when you're supposed to start your crossing. And after that ends, you're not supposed to start your crossing because there won't be enough time to finish your crossing. So that would be, for example, the walk interval ends. In some cities, they have countdown timers. And that information, I've seen sighted people start walking when there's five seconds left across the lane highway. Not a good idea. <laughs> um, there is a figure that is used by the Federal Transit Administration in their what's called the MUTCD, which is the Manual of Uniform MU Traffic Control, traffic device. control Devices. There you go. <laughs> Thank you.
5: Um,
4: and it's so many feet per second is is what they figure. So they measure the intersection, and that tells them how long the walk cycle or walk phase is supposed to be. Um, So that's really when you're supposed to start and and initiate your crossing. So with the, the lead pedestrian interval, basically a traffic division or whoever controls your devices can flip a switch and make a signal have a lead pedestrian interval. Um, So as a blind pedestrian, it may occur, and we found that this happened at several intersections in New York City, um, where they flipped a switch and turned on the lead pedestrian interval because it helped the traffic flow, and the blind pedestrians had no clue. (laughs) (laughs) So they're basically changing your your. Intersection and without you even knowing, there's no construction that goes on. They're just pushing a button and somewhere in a control center, um, and they can they can monitor that both by um, internal um, loops that are in the ground and looking at traffic cameras and looking at traffic flow and all those things. So traffic has really changed, and we as pedestrians need to be a very active role um, in that. In New York City, the first pedestrian signal that was accessible to people that was blind was installed, I believe it was in 1959, Tori may know? 1957. Oh, 57. 57 Okay. Do you know where it was? In Queens. Ah, okay. So there you go. So that's that's where that was done in New York. Um, And... Accessible signals have gone through several, several reiterations. There were ones where you would push a button and a bell would ring and the bell would indicate that you could cross. Um, then there were the chirp chirps and the cuckoos that came later on. And some of you may remember those, the chirp chirps were supposed to mean you were heading one direction and the cuckoos were supposed to indicate you were crossing the the other direction, except for sometimes the cities didn't maintain that. Or if there was a curb in the street, maybe you were traveling east and then it cur- the street that you were walking down curved and now you were heading north. So when you got to the next corner, you had gone from a chirp chirp to a cuckoo or vice versa. And then we moved on to where um, the signals spoke and it would say, walk sign is on to cross and the name of the street. The problem with that is that when you're walking in an environment where you may not be familiar, you're not going to necessarily know your street names. So we have come into what is an international standard. It's used all over the world. There is no language skills necessary to understand the rapid tick. Um, I've heard some comments that it sounds similar to a gunshot. I don't really think it does. It It's, it's a very distinctive noise, but um, it's a rapid tick that starts when you're supposed to start your crossing and then it ends. So... Uh, Some of you may be saying, well, how am I supposed to find the pole that has the vibral tactile if that's the feature I want to use? Well, you know, if you have some hearing that is directional, there are uh, locator tone features that allow you to find the pole. And there are standards as to how loud both the audible portion of the accessible pedestrian signal should be as well as the pole indicator tone. Um, and those have specifications that are set out in the MUTCD standards. Um, And it's important that, you know, as blind people, that we educate ourselves about what these processes are and how to use them and get the orientation and mobility training to help us feel comfortable in those situations um, so that we can effectively use them. I um, (laughs) ironically when i lived in new york um i was contacted one time by a reporter and they said oh the the signal is you know it stops making noise and i said well that's what's supposed to happen and they said well what do you mean it's not supposed to make noise all the time and i said no you know it it stops and then it gets faster oh well i thought it was supposed to be fast like that all the time i said no that's how you know when it's time to cross the street when it gets fast it's kind of like telling you run across the street not run literally but (laughs) um you know so it's important to educate yourselves um and and educate others and let them know um you know if you think about it it's not only us anymore that benefits from accessible pedestrian signals it's those sighted pedestrians that are walking around looking at their phones (laughs) um
2: you're
6: right about that
4: it's true So there are
2: parents that teach their kids how to cross the street using the APS signals too, which I think is really great.
4: It's yeah, and I mean it's it's something that's pretty easy for the kids to understand because again, you don't have to you don't have to be able to see the walk don't walk or the image of the person walking or the waiting the um you know the don't walk the visual don't walk signal so. You know, it's, it's definitely, it gives a multi-sensory experience for a child. And, you know, that's so important. If we think about sensory integration and all of that, it, it really helps them understand everything.
2: And the ticking, too, gives them an internal kind of timing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it teaches them that, the, you know, I need to be moving my feet this fast to get across yep. before the car start moving. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's a sensory thing that kids, you know, digest and incorporate without even realizing, you know, in, in fact, I, I heard one parent a couple of years ago saying that, you know, in she would hear her daughter tick click click clicking, you know, through her teeth, like uh-huh. mimicking the sound. And uh-huh. her feet would speed up as she was getting closer to the, you know, the opposite crosswalk, you know, the the what do you call it? Um curb cut. Uh, you know, and and she'd be tick tick ticking through her mouth or her teeth, and the ticking would get faster, and her feet would get faster, and I just thought that was awesome. It's sort of like you know those folk, those sighted folks that are using audio description so that they can do you know their chores but still catch up what's to what's happening on their favorite shows. So we you know we provide things to the larger community that you know the original design never even intended for, but it, it ends up working out that way. I think that's great. (laughs) But Lori, I was wondering if you could go back for a minute and talk a little bit more about locating the poll, because I did an informal poll doing some research for today, trying to figure out what to ask and and Mm -hmm. things. And the one thing that that I heard the most was, you know, people when they're they're traveling to different cities, they don't know how to find the poll, but it's pretty standard now for most big cities, isn't it?
4: It should be if they are following the guidelines. The locator tone is a very specific noise that should be audible within Patrick. Maybe, you know, the actual footage. I want to say 15 feet.
6: It's yeah, I think it's closer than 15 feet, actually. Yeah. I, generally the the what I have seen in the installations is that the uh, locator tone pole will be the the APS will be at the top left hand corner of that uh, uh, intersection so that as you're walking down that ramp you know that you, you know you've got your Uh, APS at the top left hand corner and then you can uh, hit the button and then line up with that arrow which I think is so critical making sure that that arrow is pointing that you're pointing in that same direction as that arrow and making sure that that arrow is actually pointing to that intersection is so critical so that you're lined up properly I can't tell you the number of times that I have walked through uh, intersections uh, and I thought that I was Uh, Set up straight, but I'm actually veering maybe to the left or the right because the arrow wasn't set up
2: properly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And, And it's, I think the other thing that's important to understand is, you know, years ago, you could cross a street and not need to activate the pedestrian button. It's really important because very often that button gives you additional time to cross the street. Without mm-hmm. you pushing the button, the light doesn't know that somebody's standing there waiting.
6: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I ran, ran into was you went over it before, Lori, the leading pedestrian interval. <laughs> I can't tell you. I think I've been. I'm part of the pedestrian environmental access committee. Uh, We just added pedestrian to our name because that's the focus of the committee. And I, you know, so I've been on that committee for quite a while. And for a year or so, I'd stand at the at the uh, intersection, and I'd see all these sighted people taking off the four or five seconds before I did, because of course my signal wasn't set up. So that the leading, so that it took advantage of the leading pedestrian interval. And um, uh, I'm thinking that the, Sighted public is just dashing across the street because they can see what's going on, which is fine for them, but I was going to take that chance only to find out that they hadn't been synchronized, and I think that's, you know, really important to be able to take advantage of, and it's not a difficult thing to do. Lori, you brought up the other day something that I was unaware of, and I think that this is so important. You indicated to me that the leading pedestrian interval was also uh, could also be altered by the way traffic is uh, is moving through a, an area. sometimes it yes. will turn on and sometimes it won't. Why don't you talk about that? I think that's fascinating and, and I actually didn't know about that. It yeah. does make the overall crossing a little bit more difficult because you may think that you've got this intersection designed one way, whereas right now it's oh by the way i just changed have a nice day right can you walk so, people through that
4: sure so basically you know they can flip a switch and depending on the time of day it is or what they can see at their command center to make a an intersection a lead pedestrian interval so in new york city when they initially rolled out the lead pedestrian interval
7: intersections
4: (laughs) they didn't have to go out to a thousand intersections and make this change they just had to flip a switch Mm -hmm. so people got up and you know walked about their day and like patrick wondered what was going on. Why is everybody crossing before me now? Because there is no accessible pedestrian signal at these intersections at this point. And they had no clue what went on. So because um, traffic departments can make these kinds of changes now by sitting in an office, it's very important for us to have access to that Understanding what's going on with the walk phase, no matter where it is, not only the lead pedestrian intervals, it's all the time they can because what happens is they see, a 100 feet before the intersection, five cars have rolled over the little sensor in the ground. So now we know there's five cars waiting there for the light to change and we're going to stop the perpendicular traffic and let the parallel traffic go and it's all about keeping traffic moving traffic it's called traffic calming and all these nice fancy terms they've come up with so they um you know they don't even have to be out there to do this um You know, it's similar to emergency vehicles in many cities have the ability to change a light so that they can continue through an intersection. This is very common both at um, like near a firehouse or similar situation. It also can be very common near a uh, trauma center or hospital so that ambulances can you know, basically put the light in their favor and continue down the street. Um, so, you know, as a pedestrian, you want to know, like, the light's not in my favor. And, yeah, I've been standing here for two minutes, and it's because that ambulance is screaming down the street. You want to know that information. You want to have access to that pedestrian information that we, that sighted people get, you um, You know, from looking at the the visual, both the light and the uh, walk, don't walk sign and the vehicles. I mean, we're never going to get the information from the vehicles per se. We're always going to be listening to it instead of looking at it. But the point is, is that we should have access to that visual information in other formats. Mm
6: hmm. So let me, um, let me see if I can jump back a little bit. Anthony, one of the things, concepts you brought up for next week, which I find fascinating, and I think I'll be tuning in on it, is the whole idea of effective communication. Title II under the ADA means that we have to have for programs and intersections being one of them, access to intersections as a program or facility. We have to have that effective communication. So in effect, whatever the sighted public gets and sees and has access to, we need to have access to. And so when states, counties, individuals are um, are advocating for the these accessible pedestrian signals, uh, what they need to be talking about is ensuring that they achieve effective communication. So they get the same information at the same time as everybody else so that they can walk, get through that intersection and, and and across that intersection. And so, uh, I know that's been established, uh, Lori, I think that's been established in New York. I know back in, in Maryland in 2005, when we, we sued the state of Maryland, uh, they, uh, Federal Highway Administration established it for Maryland, and so being able to ensure effective communication is critical. And we're even using that same technique now when we're going through and looking at this new concept that we've shown up in Maryland and showing up the rest in the rest of the county, country, uh, floating bus stops. How do we know that bus stop got yeah. moved from the sidewalk over to the middle of the street? And they say, "Well, we'll put up a sign." No, that's not effective communication. We need something that's going to be um, better than a sign, let's say, to tell us that that it's been moved or sometimes there's nothing there. So I think when we uh, when you talk about that uh, next week on on Tuesday topics and and throughout the legislative week, that's going to be something that people will find very interesting and can really grab onto.
2: So, I have a couple of questions, if you don't mind. And then, um, folks, if you have questions for Pat and Lori, you can start raising your hand too. We'll get to a few questions before we transition. Um, I've, in the research that I did for this week, I, I've heard that some of the European nations are testing apps that will um, that will locate bus stops that will locate the APS systems. Um, do you know if there's any of that research going on here in in the states? New I York, do know. Oh, go ahead, Lori. New
6: and York I, uh, City has
4: the, New York City has done some research with app-based um, <clears throat> devices. However, the problem with that is that as a pedestrian, you would need to have that particular app that that particular city is using and know that that app is available as opposed to approaching an intersection and getting the information from the device that the city or municipality provides to everybody else. No sighted person has to carry a device to know when the walk and don't walk sign is in their favor, so why should we? Also, we would, you know, depending on how the device functions, um, is there a vibral tactile feature? Does it have to be in our hand? Um, personally, I would not want to be wearing headphones in or an earpiece in one ear because that would preclude me from hearing traffic.
6: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, so
4: I'll, I'll say, know,
6: th- go ahead, line
4: There, there are pros and cons. Um, you know, I know that some of the testing that has been done on app-based systems was similar to the old infrared talking sign type of devices and there were problems with trucks cutting the signal off so there's a lot of environmental things that need to be considered you know in in manhattan there's very tall buildings um you know how does that affect things from ricocheting off of each other and you know, that's well beyond yeah. what I know anything about, but I'm just using this in a, as examples. I do know that New York has done some testing and the people um, that did the testing did not feel it was a very beneficial okay. way. So
6: they're, they're rolling something out in Washington, D.C., a, 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 a project between uh, Verizon the, the 5G way maps and good maps. And what they're doing, they're starting out with looking at the subway stations and they are putting all of the, they're, they're doing all this GPS and, uh, and also extending it out past the subway and they want to extend it. Uh, the GPS system, Throughout all of Washington D.C., eventually, the first part of the project will probably take eighteen months. I think to do all the subway systems. What is very cool about the Waymaps and Good Maps um, project is that it, um, it it makes the internal GPS just as accurate as the external GPS. So when you walk into a subway system, it'll tell you according to the number of steps and the number of feet that you just walked past the turnstile or that your fare card machine is over here, there, and the other. So we are in the process right now of, of mapping out the subway stations. And then, of course, it would be very cool to be able to map out the rest of Washington, D.C., um, but Lori is correct in that it is iPhone based, iPhone and Android based. So of course, you know that's the kind of device it's you have awesome. to have it to do it. But yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think it's got a lot of uses. Certainly, if you take and you look at Washington DC and you have a combination of using that to get around, along with uh, the museums, which you have Ira, which are Ira free areas uh, and stuff like that. You've got a, a city that has a lot of accessibility potential built into it, which is very cool.
2: Yeah. Ira did um, a test project with the New York city transit um, and it was, it was really well. Um, it was well coordinated. I'm, I'm very sorry that not more of us did not use it so that it, it became a permanent, but there are some cities that are testing again with IRA you should um, definitely check out their uh, their page and see if your city is one that they that they have MTA partnerships with. The second question I wanted to ask you guys, and I, I thought of a third one while you were talking, Pat, so I lied. I've got three now. But the second question I wanted to ask you guys is if you could speak a little bit about the most effective ways if a APS system is not aligned right or if you have a, a traffic area where there is no APS, how to advocate for getting... Um put in there. Laura, you want to jump on that?
4: Sure. Nope. So, um, first of all, um, the important thing is to find out who controls the intersections in your area. So, Um, You know, sometimes they're controlled by the city that you live in. Sometimes in some states, the state controls all of the intersections. So you need to figure those types of things out. Um, It's always good to stay involved and know what is going on in different regions, especially now with funding that's become available. Um, For municipalities to do different types of work, check and see, are they putting in lights where there had not been any light previously? Um, If they are, are they going to make that an accessible pedestrian signal and you should advocate for it to be an accessible pedestrian signal? Um, The New York case case actually did not happen overnight we started the process back in 2010 under Pratik patel when he was president of acb of new york um it was a lengthy process and a lot of people took a lot of time to work on different things um I will say back in 2007, I believe it was, ACB of New York held a an Accessible Pedestrian Signal Summit, and nobody from New York City came. <laughs> wow. People from other parts of the state came. Um, people from uh, the federal transit folks came. And it was a whole day training that was done, um, and uh, it was a great, great program, and unfortunately, nobody from New York City came. Um, That being said, we did, as a result of that training, have a lot of movement within other parts of New York State related to accessible pedestrian signals, both on the local uh, level and the state level. Um, on Long Island, New York State is really good about installing accessible pedestrian signals where they cover. Um, the same thing is true for in the uh, capital region of the state. Um, Monroe County had somebody at that specific training and they have done a great amount of work um With regards to installing. So, um, you know, it's really laying the groundwork and getting the things done. So in 2010, we began working with New York City, the mayor's office for people with disabilities, and um, New York City, New York City Department of Transportation, trying to bring them together and say like, okay, like, you know, what are we going to do here, we need these accessible pedestrian signals. For clear and effective communication and you know they out of that came the PASS coalition which um is, stands for pedestrians for accessible and safe streets and they have done an immense amount of work and kept things moving in New York City um and Um, during that time but still we did ACB of New York specifically did not feel that the requests that had been previously made um, and then we did not feel that new requests were being honored and moving forward quick enough so it's all about developing relationships and a huge component of this is educating yourself as a blind pedestrian just because you think something is what you want may not be legally is what legally what is required. I've actually sat there and read the MUTCD to help educate myself. I've gone to trainings at ACB National, um, and um, you know, really educated myself to different things. And actually, one of them was done by Gene Berkman and I remember him saying to me, "Lori, what are you doing here? You know this," and I said, "Nope." I'm here because I always can learn more.
2: <laughs> so are there registries where somebody could go and find out where the EPSs are in their area and where else can they where else can they go to find out what their specific counties or states um like where's what are the starting points to you know to build their advocacy journey? I think we, Go ahead, Lauren.
6: Go ahead,
4: Patrick. I was just going to say, I think the starting point is reaching out to the Department of Transportation and finding out, you know, what the procedures are for that area.
6: And I agree with that. We started with the State Highway Administration in Maryland, and that's where we had the most effect initially. And then as that went on we found out that the uh, counties in maryland and then the uh, in the in the local jurisdictions they brought on the same devices so the devices are a lot easier to manipulate now as Lori had stated earlier because you can uh, manipulate the devices make sure that they are up and working you can a- activate the leading pedestrian interval all from a, a command center so my thinking is that whether you're starting in your, in your town locally or whether you're starting, uh, as we did with, in Maryland with State Highway Administration, start there because the, the Title II uh, effective communication component, is critical, and you can apply that whether it's in your your county, uh, your local area, statewide. Uh, sometimes it's easier to work county, but uh, it's still the same argument that you you are entitled to the same information as everybody else. When installing these APSs, uh, we have used Polera quite a bit. We're polara based in Maryland, and I think a lot of us are. So there is certainly a lot of good information on that. And I, the other thing I would say is, Lori, I, I would imagine you're you agree, is that there are a lot of people that have done this before. So talk to talk to us. Uh, we can give you the good, the bad, and the ugly things to avoid problems that we've run into. Uh, successes that we've had horrible installations that we run into uh, across the state and all that kind of stuff you know so and how to work with people the it's the relationships as laurie was saying with the traffic engineers bringing them up to speed with oh it's not all just rapid tip it's not going to go on and on and on forever and ever and ever you know what happened to the chirp chirps and cuckoos no they've gone by the wayside and what is the ideal uh you know setup that we should have much better to have those relationships up front uh, with the yeah. traffic engineers so you get the installation correct and the pole is in the correct spot with the arrow pointing in, in the correct direction than having to go back later and fix that
2: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so my third question when I was doing research, um, I, I used a lot of the Facebook groups and, and I asked a few questions and it it seemed to spark a sidebar conversation. We had spoke about floating bus stops a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. but a lot of the cities are also putting in where you can pay for your ride. You can pay for the bus before, you, before the bus even gets to you. Um, and a lot of those don't seem to be marked in any way um, for accessibility. So does that fall in any way under APS and if, if folks are experiencing you know difficulty finding these uh, kiosks where you have to pay for your for your trip before you even like I said before you even get on the bus, does that fall under any of these titles, or any of these statutes where we could advocate for that as well?
6: Oh, that's a
2: good one.
4: Yeah, I- it, would, it would not be related to accessible pedestrian signals. Usually it's a system that is maintained by the transit Authority. And what happens is, so you pay for your ticket and in some cities you pay for your ticket at a machine and then there's like a queue that you get, for lack of a better word, herded into. And <clears throat> then those people board onto the bus.
6: But those kiosks have to also be accessible. Yep. I mean, we, we've done that before. So you have to have, you know, a, an audible feature on those kiosks. Uh, the same way as you would uh, in any medical facility or even as if you're going to restaurants now, you'll see that they've got to have uh, an audible component on that. And I think, interestingly enough, uh, you know, you, you're looking at, uh, you know, access, uh, uh, ex- accessibility access through um uh, you know, digital services and, and that sort of thing, the accessibility of kiosks is going to be something that's going to come up and it's going to be much more widespread and something we need to advocate for. It's a little bit different as far as how you achieve that accessibility, but you still need to be able to manipulate that very much as you would, uh, the you know, the at the banks with the uh, 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 telemachines.
2: And have yeah, the same
6: I kind of in, ac- access there.
2: Absolutely. I, I walked into a quest recently, and it was 6 o'clock in the morning because I did not want to sit there for hours and hours. And all of a sudden, the machine started speaking. If you were blind or visually impaired, please swipe with three fingers to the right. And was boom. This I was, quest? This was in a, a quest? quest? Yeah. No. Quest. That's great. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a pilot program, and only some of them are getting it. But yeah. I was just... I was, I was floored because I know that we've had a lot of problems requests. so I guess. Yeah, um, I, I means, have
4: heard from numerous people. Apparently, that has be, come about within the last, I want to say, since the middle of December, beginning of January.
2: Yeah, mine was in December, um, right yeah. before we left Honduras. <laughs> All right, Sheila, let's take a look and see if we have any hands for, for Patton and Lori.
3: Alright, would you like me to tell people how to raise their hand or would you like me just to um...
2: Yeah, no, let's let's go through the rundown and if you are out there listening and you are not on Zoom and have a question or comment I am all over the place It is the same Sunday edition, so if you come across any of the postings with a Zoom, click that link and join us
3: Alright, if you're on a PC, to raise your hand is Alt-Y, to mute and unmute is Alt-A, if you're on a Mac, it's Option-Y to mute and unmute is Command Shift A. If you're on a smartphone, smart device, the bottom right under More Options, open that up and swipe to raise hand. And then bottom left is Mute and Unmute. And if you're on a landline, it is star nine for the letter Y and star six for the letter M to mute and unmute. Chris Bell. Hey, guys. <clears throat> Nice presentation.
7: So, a uh, couple of quick things. Um, it's my understanding that an accessible pedestrian signal is not like putting in a whole new signal, All right. It's, a, it's an addition to a an existing pedestrian signal. So, it's not as big a deal as it sounds like. And I'm wondering what kind of prices you guys are aware of for for uh, you know a signal. I mean, I know it varies in terms of the installation cost. But, you know, we're not talking millions of dollars here.
4: Well, first of all, it's, it, it really, <clears throat> we didn't go into as much detail as we could. Sometimes with accessible pedestrian signals, as we talked about the uh, vibral tactile push button, sometimes right. because of pre-existing infrastructure, they may have to use what's called a stub pole, which is separate from the actual pole so for example on long island there's a situation where the push button is 30 feet away from the intersection don't ask why i don't know but in that case they're going to be using a stub pole so that it can the the push button can be located at the correct location so there are things outlined in the uniform the MUTCD for how engineers can go about this,
7: right? So, but I'm I'm a, I, I want I'm trying to make a distinction between the installation, which is the subpoles and the wiring and all that stuff that you might have to put in for the infrastructure to make a signal accessible, from the cost of the signals itself. When I was in Minnesota, um, and this was a while ago, uh, this, the Minnesota Department of Transportation bought from Polara a whole bunch of signals and so and they'd sell them to the local city or county and they were i think 400 bucks a piece which is you know not a hell of a lot of money so um i'm sure they're more expensive now but my point is that um you know these things they sound like it's a a huge deal financially but it's not okay my second thought is and the way i do it as as a lawyer is i would send an email to your city or your county or your state, and I, and I would use almost all states and uh, state governments have a public records law, they call it different things, but um, you write an email, uh, let's say to your city department of transportation, and the first thing you ask is the name of all persons responsible for installing accessible pedestrian signals and their contact information. Okay. The second thing you ask for is um, you'd like to identify what intersections have pedestrian signals that are not accessible and what intersections have pedestrian signals that are accessible. And so you're looking to create uh, information about what percentage of the pedestrian signals are accessible. And you can ask for those numbers too, straight out. Okay. And that gives you a sense of, you know, how, how, what we're talking about here is access to the pedestrian environment. This is the program or activity in the level of the city government under the ADA. And so, you know, if like in New York, I think they had what 2% were of all of the intersections that were pedestrian signals, 2% or 5%, whatever the hell it was. It was a very, very small percentage. And that's the kind of information that you want to begin to acquire um, to, to make your legal and other arguments. But finally, it's really important if you're going to request a signal at your local intersection to your house, or however you're going to do it, to do this stuff and write it.
8: Yes. I don't mean no, that
7: send an envelope with a stamp on it. Send an email, but you have to have a record that you've Return asked for these things. Yeah. If you just call yep. them... There's no record, and when it comes to any kind of administrative or court litigation, you have to be able to have the evidence of what you've asked for and when and what the response was,
2: and now I'll shut up. Thank you. This That's is, a great sorry. point, Chris. Oh, I'm sorry. God. Oh,
9: I, I was just going to come in and, and um, address the cost question that came up earlier. Um, you know, Chris, you're, you're right that the devices themselves are not overly expensive, but the, the really expensive piece is the poles and the placement and installation of the poles. And if you have a city where the existing poles are placed in a good spot for APS, then you're right. It might not be a very expensive addition, mm-hmm. but particularly for a lot of older cities, the poles are, were designed for traffic signals. They weren't designed for pedestrian signals. So, in many cases in new york in particular the existing poles are not in a good location for aps they would have someone crossing you know too close to traffic not it's not appropriately located for the mutcd and there you you wouldn't want to cut corners with a poor APS installation that could be risky. And so it, it it winds up being more expensive, but better all around to simply rebuild the poles or add stumbles or redesign the intersection in some way so that the APS is appropriately aligned with the sidewalks. It's 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 ensuring that the pedestrians can safely cross without going into traffic. So The variation of cost varies widely because some intersections are already perfectly set up, um, but other intersections are going to require a lot more work simply because the electric poles were all installed far before anyone cared about pedestrian signals, accessible or otherwise.
6: And Tori, this is Pat. Wouldn't you also say this is how we've done it, is when that intersection is being redesigned, that you can upgrade it to put in and make sure the wiring and the cabling and all that other stuff is in place for the uh, the uh, accessible pedestrian signal.
9: Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it should be built in. It saves everyone money and time. And it
6: saves, yeah, and yeah. it makes yeah. it and more accessible up front, right.
9: Which which
4: goes back to my statement about knowing what's going on going forward. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I think as blind people we miss out that there's never been a light at that intersection well you know what they're getting ready to do work and they're going to put one there um you know and it's really if you can get in at the time when an installation is going to occur all the better and that's a way to help them keep costs down, which is, you know, one of the issues that we had with New York City was that, you know, we were kind of saying, like, you know, you're you're going from walk, don't walk signs to putting those what's the term I can ever remember, Tori? The pictures.
9: Oh, I, I pictograms is what I would Yeah, say. I
4: that's the, <laughs> yeah, there's some term yeah, for them. Back in 2010, we were saying, like, you know, you're making all these changes for everyone else. What about us?
2: And, Lori, to your point earlier, too, and this is across the advocacy board, but especially, you know, definitely for, for this scenario, there's a lot of federal money out there for up expansion and upgrades. So, you know, if, if APS signals are, you know, an issue in your area... Find out what federal funding your city or town or state is getting and if they are going to be researching traffic, especially traffic flow changes. Because a lot of intersections change because the traffic flow has changed. A school has been built or a hospital has been expanded, et cetera, et cetera. And those, once they start putting in these new traffic flow patterns and changing the intersections, that's the perfect time to get it done, as to get APS signals in because they're already like you said they're already doing half of the work so why not add on you know and keep the cost effectiveness down i heard a couple more hands go up so let's go back to sheila and see who is next
3: um someone with ipad you have your hand raised please unmute
7: is that me? I don't know. I had to.
3: Oh, did you oh, You went out and came back I, in. Okay.
7: I, I fell out. Yeah, but I hit the wrong button and I came back in. So if somebody else hasn't. It is has you. A, a it's you, raised, Chris. Them.
3: You crossed yeah. the street? <laughs> yeah, I crossed the street.
2: <laughs> All right. Anyone else?
3: No, sir. All
2: right, then. Lori, we're going to transition. To talking about the New York State case as soon as we come back from this promo. Take it away, Rick.
0: The 2022 ACB Virtual DC Leadership Meetings will be held Saturday, March 12th through Tuesday, March 15th. Registration is $20 for ACB members and $30 for non-members. ACB members were sent a discount code via email. If you're an ACB member and did not receive the discount code, please call the Minneapolis office at 612-332-3242. Registration closes March Visit acb.org for more information or register at https slash slash tinyurl.com slash 2022-DC-leadership-meetings.
1: This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest... In the Spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affects all of us in and out of the ACB community.
2: (laughs) Wow. there's my horns. You'll be hearing that promo often between now and and Leadership Week. And I want to remind folks that there will be a Leadership Week on ACB Media, starting with Tuesday topics on February 8th, talking about effective communication. Friday of February 11th will be Visibility with Terry Pacheco. Her special guest will be Debbie Grubb, and we'll be talking about getting these appointments. What are the most effective ways to reach the LAs, to stand out to the L.A.'s, And to, of course, actually land that meeting. And then on February 13th here on Sunday edition, Quark and Swatha will join us and we will roll out this year's imperatives, talk all about it, answer all your questions. And that following week, there'll be two or three open community calls to talk about the imperatives too. So we are really gearing up for leadership week this week. I have been talking with Lori and Pat about APS signals. And Lori, I would love for you to take the opportunity to welcome Tori back to Sunday edition and talk a little bit about the case.
4: Thank you, Anthony. So yes, we, um, ACB of New York uh, started back in 2010, developing a rapport with uh, New York City Department of Transportation and the Mayor's Office of People with Disabilities on the installation of accessible pedestrian signals. Um, and from that point on, we out of that came the development of what's called the PASS Coalition, Pedestrians for Accessible Se- and Safe Streets. Um, and that is a group of blindness organizations uh, that primarily are in New York City focusing on working on accessibility issues within New York City. Um, And then Tori actually approached ACB of New York back in 2018. And Tori, why don't you explain what happened at that point?
9: Hi, so thank you so much for having me back. I'm Tori Atkinson. I am a staff attorney at Disability Rights Advocates, Uh, which is a nonprofit legal center that works to advance the rights of people with disabilities, primarily through high impact litigation. Um, And so as Laurie explained, uh, and I always tell people, you know, advocacy should always come first. Um, Legal action takes a long time uh, and, you know, you can often get results much more quickly through advocacy. So I just want to emphasize that early and often, (laughs) but for this case, we represent, uh, the ACB of New York as well as uh, two blind pedestrians and um, and I should say that DRA represents uh, ACB affiliates all over the place. We've done some cases in uh, Massachusetts and California regarding voting rights and um, adding audio description to Hulu and HBO and Netflix um, and things like that. So we are uh, a longtime friend of ACB and um, So the case was filed in 2018. And just to give you a sense of sort of the state of affairs when the case was filed. So New York City at the time had about 13,000 signalized intersections, Uh, fewer than 2% had accessible pedestrian signals despite eight years of advocacy um, from PASS and ACB and this kind of cross um, coalition of groups. And uh, they weren't even installing APS with new signals or when they were, um, you know, renovating and um, redesigning intersections. So, how many, Tori, how many approximately does New York City install, do you know, as new intersections each year? Between 100 and 150. So... So that's a big number. <laughs> it's a big number, and they were only installing 75 a year, meaning they weren't even keeping up with new intersections, and the city was becoming less accessible over time. Uh, so that that's the state of the land when, when uh, we filed the case, and... The case is a class action, which means that um, ACB of New York, as well as the two plaintiffs, the individual plaintiffs, are representatives on behalf of all people who are blind or have vision disabilities in New York, um, because the goal was to get systemic change, not just change for one person, um, but to really change the city. And so the case was certified as a class action um, in 2019. And we uh, went to summary judgment, which essentially just means we told the court, you know, we don't need a, a trial. We agree on the facts. The, the question here is, you know, is the amount of APS that's out there sufficient to make an accessible city? And the court ruled at the end of 2020 that it does not, um, that it wasn't even close to providing accessible, uh, uh, a, an accessible pedestrian grid to people who are blind. So um, that, that was the big ruling in October of 2020. Um, and then the next question, of course, is, okay, well, what do you do about it? <laughs> so we moved into the remedy phase. Um, and I don't know Laura, if you want to add anything before we got to that point, but I know we talked about this last time we were on Sunday edition, so I didn't want to repeat too much.
4: No, I think that's pretty good thus far.
2: Exactly. And I'm gonna link the previous show in the show notes so that folks can go back and listen to oh, it was a little over a year ago that we did this, so they can go back and listen to that and then um you know come back here and, and figure things out. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's let's talk about this next phase. Um, because I, I I really am very proud to to say that um, you know, some really good movement has been made.
9: Yeah, it's been huge. So during the remedy, the first thing that happened hang on, was. A, a hang on.
2: Oops.
7: All
9: right, go ahead. Uh, submitted a proposed remedial plan of what the remedy should look like, um, and as you can imagine, there was a there was a pretty large gulf between what um, we were proposing, what ACB and the plaintiffs were proposing, and what the city was proposing. Um, The uh, one of the things that we have won was that they do have to install APS with all new intersections. So that was great. Um, And they actually began doing that before the remedy phase. Uh, So, at least we weren't becoming less accessible with time. But at the pace of, I I believe at that time, it was 150 a year. They had increased it through the litigation. It would have taken something like 60 years to be fully accessible. Um, So, when it came time to proposing a remedy, we uh, engaged experts. And so, our expert uh, was originally Janet Barlow uh renowned orientation mobility uh specialist i believe she was also on the environmental access committee Pat, can correct me on that one um really wonderful and she she had put together a lot of information for the court trying to explain to a non-disabled judge you know this is how a blind pedestrian moves about the city this is how they would cross the street this is what they need um and that was really critical to to Kind of getting through to someone who might not have any experience with these challenges so she was the expert for the remedy and she put together a plan that essentially proposed a 10 year transition plan to make all of the intersections accessible it had a bunch of components one was uh, ensuring that individual requests which had so far kind of languished in a endless queue um, that those be prioritized Um, you know, at the time we filed the case, there were requests that had been sitting there for more than five years. Um, another one was making sure that the city was prioritizing APS installations based on safety and on transportation research. Um, so that meant prioritizing EPPs, exclusive pedestrian phases, and LPIs, leading pedestrian intervals, which Lori and Pat were just talking about, because those are particularly dangerous and challenging. Um, And so she proposed using these long-established criteria um, developed by uh, the Access Board and the National Highway um, Association. I I forget the exact titles of the various committees, Um, but federal research essentially on best practices for how to rank like against like when you're trying to put together a transition plan. Um, And the other thing that we put together when we put our remedy was we reached out to stakeholders and we wound up having, I believe 14 stakeholders and community groups submit letters of support for our plan. So we had not just, um, you know, vision organizations, we had ACB, we had NFB, we had Um, cross disability groups like disabled in action, like independent living centers. And we had orientation and mobility specialists also write letters to the court to really highlight how important um, this is and how urgent it is and how, you know, waiting decades wouldn't be sufficient to provide meaningful access. So that was plaintiff's plan. Um, And then defendants had proposed a plan that would take more than 30 years um, they also proposed rather than making the whole city accessible, selecting zones of accessibility is what they call them, which were essentially 10 zip codes that were chosen based on a combination of census data, um, some historical APS requests and, um, their list of facilities that they said serve people who are blind. Um, and it was really focused on geography, not safety. Uh, We raised many concerns about this program first that it was woefully insufficient. I mean, 30 years is more than a generation, Um, but also that it would segregate people who are blind into zones. Um, And, you know, it it seems premised on stereotypes that, you know, people who are blind don't leave their homes (laughs) that they don't travel and use the whole city. Um, So those were some of the concerns we raised with that. And ultimately um, the United States through the US Attorney's Office and the Department of Justice filed a statement of interest in our case supporting plaintiffs proposed plan and opposing defendants plan for many of the reasons um, that I just mentioned, they also came in and articulated very helpfully. that. I, Numerous ways that federal funding can be used for APS installation, particularly after the um, American Infrastructure and Jobs Act, which we probably know as the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, that particular bill expanded discretionary grant programs that could be used for APS to something like six billion a year, in addition to you know, block grant increases to to cities for safety related projects in which APS counts um, by something like 25% each year. So truly a massive amount of federal funding was available to do these things. Um, and they eventually, they, they essentially agreed with us that defendants hadn't shown they couldn't afford to do more. So those were the competing plans um, before we went into a three-day evidentiary hearing. Um, I guess before I go into that, Lori, is there anything I should add about the the remedy phase?
2: I think you covered it pretty well.
9: All right, Um, so we had a three-day evidentiary hearing and I hope that some of you were able to tune in. Um, We worked hard to make sure that there was a public access dial in line um, it was a strange experience during COVID, uh, but the first day, we it was uh, plaintiffs, and we went first with our expert, and unfortunately, um, Ms. Barlow passed away over the summer. Um, we're all very sad that she did not get to see the end of this. Um, yeah. And we uh, had succeeded her with Dr. Eugene Borkwin, who Laurie also mentioned, was also an orientation mobility specialist and um, incredibly educated on these issues. Um, so he testified the first day and spent a lot of time explaining to the court, you know, why APS is essential, what its features do, um, how they how they essentially make accessible the sighted pictograms that sighted people take for granted and it provides, um, you know, confidence and it makes unambiguous the walk signal and the difference that that makes for a pedestrian in being independent. So the defense went starting the end of the first day and into the second day. Yeah. Can I just say something? Also,
4: Tori had, a demonstration unit of an accessible pedestrian signal in the courtroom with her so that the judge could see how an accessible pedestrian signal works, both the auditory component as well as the vibrotactile component.
2: Yes.
9: Great move. (laughs) Yeah, the judge took (laughs) it back into chambers to hopefully play with it. So (laughs) that was great to demystify it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so then the defendants got up and their witness was the deputy commissioner of signals, um, who essentially explained in great detail why APS installation is challenging, it's expensive, it requires construction, um, and, you know, testified to a lot of the efforts that had already been made to increase the APS installation and a lot of concerns that they Claim they had about, you know, doing more than they were already doing, not due necessarily to money, um, but because of logistical reasons. So some things that were raised are um, New York City, like many cities, contracts out uh, its construction work. And so there's a question about whether there were enough contractors available to ramp up the work. Um, they articulated concerns about office space, yard space. Um, really, all these kind of like other logistical challenges, and you know, we we made the point that you know this is a this is a long term project. <laughs> you know, we we propose ten years, and that's a that gives you plenty of time to figure this out. And it's true that if you're not willing to change any of the parameters about how you operate, then yeah, you wouldn't be able to do more. But that that's a false assumption, and. Um, you know, the city needs to rise to the challenge and the judge, uh, the judge ultimately agreed. I mean, he told the deputy commissioner on the stand, don't you want this to be the jewel in your tiara of public service? Um, so, uh, so we closed the remedial hearing with a day of argument and, um, we, at the end of December received our remedial order um which tracks very closely to what plaintiffs had sought um i see lori you unmuted did you want to add something i, before I got
10: did yes. ironically
9: that was the day
4: after janet barlow's birthday oh that's lovely
10: isn't that yeah
2: <laughs>
4: i love that um so it was so also did- a late late christmas gift
2: absolutely (laughs) and you were very excited and we loved all of the um, information that you put out for us and broke it down but let's do it again for Sunday edition what exactly does the order say now
4: it's long it's 90 pages
2: (laughs) (laughs) well if anyone can summarize it well it would be you and Tori
9: (laughs) I'm going to leave that up to her my best, yes. It is very long. It is 90 pages. Uh, the judge was clearly listening the whole time. Um, the, the, the the abridged version <laughs> is that the city has to install APS at at least 10,000 signalized intersections over the next 10 years. Um, they currently have fewer than 1,000, so this is 9,000 over the next 10 years. And given that the pace of installation has historically been... Uh, 75 and then 150 a year, this is going to involve a ramp up period to more than a thousand a year. So uh, in 2022, they have to do 400, and then next year they have to do 500, and then the year after that, 700, and then 900 for the next two years. And then the last few years, um, he didn't list a number, but said it has to be enough essentially to, to get to 10,000, which um, should be around, seven, sorry, around 950 a year. So it's truly a remarkable uh, ramp up process. They also, obviously, have to install APS at all new signals, um, which is important. And that is sort of phase, phase one of the order. And um, they also have to address all of the outstanding community requests. There are all, almost 200 um, that really need to be taken care of, and the judges order them to do that in the next few years. Um, and, Then there is phase two, (laughs) and phase two is the next five years uh, from 2031 to 2036, they have to finish and do the rest of the intersections. Um, He did leave open to them the possibility of saying, uh, you know, we've done enough and we don't want to keep going, but the city actually was very clear at the hearing that they intend to uh, keep going until they're done, so that's great. And uh, essentially it's going to be a massive investment in accessibility over the next 10 years, not the next 60. (laughs) Um, There's some other pieces that are really interesting. Uh, One is that they have to prioritize LPIs and EPPs because of the unique challenges that they pose. Um, So they have to be front loaded into the 10 year process. Um, And the court is going to appoint and monitor to oversee this remedial plan um, and make sure that they they meet their benchmarks and that they're on track to meet what's in the order um, and provide notice to the court if there's any deficiencies um, and provide annual reports essentially to the court to make sure that they're doing what they need to be doing.
2: So, folks, I definitely have a few questions, um, but if you are out there listening, you can find the Sunday edition link on any of the posts about today's show or any previous Sunday edition. Link is always the same. Um, so my first question, Tori, is did I read it correctly that any new signal is not part of that um, th- that amount per year that they have to that they have that they have to achieve so if a new signal is going up it doesn't count as part of that 400 500 900 no it does
9: count it does count it
2: does okay and what about the um, the, the community-based orders does that count as well yes Okay. And and the judge
9: also provided that for future requests, because obviously requests are going to keep coming in, um, that there be a a minimum of at least 35 requests a year that the city addresses addresses. through the request process.
2: I saw that in there. Okay. So my second question is, are there any ways and do, do we foresee that the city might challenge this order in any way?
9: That's a good question. It's been more than 30 days since the order. And to my knowledge, they have not appealed. Um, So I'm not aware of it. But who knows? (laughs) All
2: right. And before we start taking questions from from our listeners, um, what does this mean for other municipalities around the country? And what should other advocacy groups around the country be looking at as far as this decision is concerned?
9: I really hope it's a wake up call to other municipalities who have really um, in many cases sort of back the needs of uh, uh, accessible pedestrian signals and really the needs of people with disabilities generally, um, but particularly with respect to the pedestrian grid and transportation. Um, the hope really is that this is an alarm bell uh, that prompts other cities to take immediate action um, to make their cities more accessible it's it's really frustrating that it took this long. I mean, the as Lori said, the the advocacy began twelve over twelve years ago, um, and so. The hope is that that won't happen again, that this will get kick, kick people into gear. Um, and the other thing I'll say also to echo what Lori said is that the advocacy piece really, really matters. I mean, when we put forward our evidence at this hearing, our evidence included letters from people in the community, this backlog of requests. We had letters That the borough president and that local politicians had written the city saying, hey, I'm getting calls from people saying they need APS. Why haven't you been stalling APS? We had um, uh, testimony from the New York City Council where advocates had come in and given their time and done the work to testify um, to, I think they had even done a simulation where they blindfolded city council members and told them to kind of <laughs> to see what it's like to take your chances playing Frogger on the street. And, um, and all of that really mattered. It gave us an incredible amount of evidence to show that this was not a new need, this was an existing need, and they knew that they needed to do it, um, and they hadn't been fulfilling it. So I would really, really just encourage um, that advocacy. And now you have you have a decision to point to and say, <laughs> you don't want a judge to tell you to do it, right? You should do it. And, and and
4: just, issue,
2: so go ahead, Lori.
4: I, I was just going to say, and just to add to what Tori said Going back to its advocacy and education, and if all of if if we did not work so hard to educate people within New York City over that period of time as to what is an accessible pedestrian signal, why does it help me as a blind person? How does it work? All of those things, I don't know that we would have been able to lay the groundwork as well, you know, so well, Um, and you know, really. A central repository of all of that information and really developing those coalitions, um, you know, it's so important. And, you know, the, the more fr- one of the frustrating things is, you know, transit and Department of Transportation don't work together. You need to help them work together because looking at those things like where are they putting in a new bus terminal? Where are they putting in, you know, a high speed rail? Um, you know, those type of things. How, how do I, how am I as a blind pedestrian going to need an accessible pedestrian signal? They're not going to think of it. You have to educate yourself understand what an accessible pedestrian signal is so you can talk about it
9: like you know it. And also to add to that, you know, the judge in this case wrote APS are essential safety features. The only reason he knew that is because the advocates and the experts had laid that groundwork. Um, And the other thing here is that it was really there, you know, as Lori said, there's a a transit component, but there's also the divide between civil servants who are in transit and the political powers that be that determine what gets funded. And the judge in this case was really clear that the 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 what was restraining the pace of aps was not a technological or even a cultural concern or obstacle it was political and it was administrative and so to the extent that you can exert that political will to overcome that that it can be just as if not more powerful than, conv- than convincing the civil servants in the agencies themselves
2: yeah, essentially, the judge was basically saying, you can't claim you didn't know with all of this evidentiary uh, advocacy that had already been done, and you can't claim that it can't be done for the same reason. You, you know, the, the advocacy that had, that had laid the groundwork gave all of that information, and then Janet herself, um, I mean, forget about it, she was um, phenomenal, amazing, with, with, with the information and research um, so, you know, they couldn't claim at that point, a, a, that it can't be done and B, that they didn't know how it could get done. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, do we know, and this might be more of a question for Pat, if you're still on, do we know if there are any cities or municipalities that are in this, you know, in this fight in this process now, um, that we should be, you know, calling out for advocacy?
9: Well, we have another case with ACB and Metropolitan Chicago against the city of Chicago, um, which is aggressively, uh, you know, opposing that litigation. So Chicago is a big one. I believe they only have 10 APS in the entire city. Um, And I know Patrick can talk about um, on the flip side, places that have done much better, like Maryland um, and Virginia.
4: And I recently have read some articles in uh, that there are some issues out in Seattle. Um, So that seems, there seems to be a very low level of installation in Seattle. And um, particularly for pedestrians who are deafblind, there are some major challenges out there um, because of the installation of light rail.
2: Yeah, two of our rather, you know, aggressive affiliates, Illinois and Washington. So, if you're out there listening, um, you know, and this is something that that you know you feel is worthy of your advocacy, reach out to your state affiliates and see what, um, you know, what and where they are with this, and, and please, see if there are
1: oh god would.
4: I was just going to say, please remember that you know, while you may not live in the city that we're speaking of. It's a state issue because, you know, it's an issue in general. You may go visit that city. You may need medical treatment in that city. Um, you know, that type of thing. It's it's When we started this, you know, back in 2010, it was like, okay, I've solved the problems for the intersections that I cross right now. But That doesn't mean that's not going to change and it needs to be improved for everybody coming behind me. So it's advocacy is not about you only. It's about the community.
2: Absolutely. So I'm going to before we go to questions, I'm going to ask you this one last question. You know, you've 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 got the victory. It's, it, you know, all of these years of, of work has has exceeded, like I would imagine exceeded what what you originally hoped it would look like. So how do you feel now? And the second piece is, if you were to write a posthumous birthday card to Janet, what would you say? And we'll go backwards. Lori, then Tori. And then Sheila, get ready. We're going to take some questions.
4: Oh, goodness. Ah. Uh, uh... I forgot what your first question it was, but your second question to Janet, she laid all the groundwork, and we really owe her a lot as people who are blind, because if you look at all the research that's out there... She was a part of it, whether her name was her name is on a lot of it. But there are some things that she played a background role in on the federal level that her name wasn't necessarily on. But she was always pushing and doing work.
2: And Lori, after all these years, personally, how do you feel? How did, What what goes through your head when you think about it?
4: Um, I just I'm so excited that. You know, I I have to say it was a very exciting process. Um, I've never been in a court setting in that particular type of situation. So that was really fascinating and interesting. Um, And really, then to see that the judge was actually listening. I mean, it was clear listening to him asking the city questions and asking Tory questions um, you know that he was listening and um, for that I am immensely grateful because you could have everybody lined up you know your your advocacy work and everything and then you could have a judge that really just didn't understand your issue for some
9: reason
2: how about you Tori?
9: I agree. I mean, as someone who was there in the courtroom, you know, he was attentively really paying attention to each witness who testified, Um, you know, and I've been in hearings and trials where the judge is, you know, doing his own thing (laughs) while you sort of enact a play on the outside and wonder if any of it is getting through. So I feel enormously grateful for that. I mean, I am beyond thrilled. It's an incredibly impactful decision. New York City is going to look so different even in five years, let alone 10. And so, I mean, that is just incredibly meaningful. And I'm really, really, really delighted that, um, that the class gets to benefit from this in their lifetime. So I mean, that was the goal um with respect to janet i mean truly uh, a legend and uh you know i can sit here and tell you all this stuff about aps because that's what janet taught me i mean i i'm not an expert in these things i'm just a regular lawyer um but janet taught me these things and um and she her work was was absolutely essential um to helping all of us be better advocates for this and in laying the groundwork federally and nationally Um, to create best practices that we could rely on. So enormously indebted to her and really, really miss her. And I'm sorry that she didn't get to see it.
2: Yeah, me too. So, uh, Sheila, who is up first? Chris
4: Chris Bell.
2: I know, you can't get rid of me.
4: Uh, Tori gets a hard question from another lawyer. (laughs)
7: <laughs> yeah. So so, so I, I, I wanted to add on to my thing about sending an email to the city transportation and st- county transportation and state transportation office. So I mentioned a couple of things, but let's talk about some other things. You can certainly ask uh, what federal grants or funding has the city or the county or the state, whoever you're talking to, uh, applied for to pay Good for the point. installation of accessible pedestrian signals because chances are yeah. they applied for any and they don't even know about it um another thing you can do is that uh, under the americans with disabilities act uh cities with more than 50 employees have to do a self-evaluation of barriers that exist and then they have to do a transition plan that sets forth the Uh, timing and where and when they're going to remove those barriers. Well, guess what? A lot of those transition plans don't say anything about accessible pedestrian signals, and they need to, okay? So one of the things you can ask in your email is, please provide us a copy with the uh, current ADA self-evaluation and transition plan indicating where uh, the lack of accessible pedestrian signals are listed as a barrier and how they will be removed that will send a bright flag to the ADA coordinator who by the way I'd copy on these because all these cities have to have ADA coordinators
5: um,
7: so those are those are a couple things so but you don't just want to sit it you don't just want to send it to the heads of the transportation departments you're concerned with. You want, to, you want to copy this, okay? You want to copy these emails. You want to copy them to the local city attorney or county attorney because you want to alert them that they have a compliance issue. And they may or may not care, but if they care, they can push the bureaucrats. Secondly, you want to copy the chair of the city commission or the city council and the chair of the uh, Whatever they call it, transportation committee or public works committee, that oversees budgeting, etc. When somebody comes and says, "I need to do," you know, "I need authorization to do transportation work," um, and uh, and let it rip. So this is obviously this isn't the advocacy that Tory and Lori are talking about per se, but it's partly of laying the groundwork in writing. So the people are alerted to the fact that, hey, you didn't know about this, but this is going to be a big issue. And um, that's all I want to say. Thanks.
2: Well, Chris, real quick before you go, you know, now yeah. that you know the, the money is out there due to the Infrastructure Act, um, would you be willing to summarize what you said today that I could post to the show notes for when this goes to podcast?
7: Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm also happy as i'm sure pat and, and Lori are to, to help people with with this stuff because i've done a lot of this stuff in my life and um, this is yeah. oh i'm sorry
4: chris this is Lori. i just wanted to acknowledge that gene berkwin has joined us and i wanted to see if he had anything to say
2: absolutely welcome to sunday edition uh,
4: thank
11: you having just joined you i would probably only repeat the wisdom you've already shared <laughs>
2: What did it feel like testifying?
11: Uh, Nerve-wracking. Testifying is okay. Being cross-examined is uh, sometimes not as much fun as it
2: should be. (laughs) Were they trying to to get under your skin a bit?
11: Uh, I think they're more trying to question uh, what you've said by pointing out your limitations. Uh, I was reminded a couple of times I wasn't a traffic engineer.
4: Mm. I yes, you, you certainly were, but the city guy was also reminded that he's not an orientation and mobility specialist, but he also has a, what was it, a... Uh, city urban planning? Urban planning. Yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, you- well,
2: I was going to say, on behalf of a transplanted New Yorker, I just want to say thank you. And I can't wait to visit, you know, in four or five years and find crossings that were so difficult and be able to press that button and do my thing. So, you know, thank you to all of you. But, Gene, thank you for joining us today as well.
4: Anthony, as a former Staten Islander, you would appreciate this when the city developed their zoning offer to us. Staten Island Not wasn't right. going on there.
2: Yeah, that's the way it always is.
9: They didn't, <laughs> they didn't get a single zone.
2: <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, Sheila, who's up next? Terry Pacheco. Hey, welcome back, Terry. I've been telling folks, by the way, about our Leadership Week activities.
12: I heard that. Thank you. I we were listening as best we could on media one um, with of course a few interruptions by the phone and such. I just wanted to bring up something that I may have missed but I think is important and that is it's kind of been touched on and that is there are so many ways of working with your municipality to get accessible pedestrian signals And one of them, just as an example, uh, what we did is we purchased a house that had a crosswalk. It's a T crossing, uh, a crosswalk almost next door. And I contacted our county and they told me, yeah, we're getting them in and yours is number 288. We should have it in the next three or four years. And that was not acceptable. So what I did was I wrote, and I copied that email into one that I wrote to every member of our county council. We had an APS in less than three months. Um, nice, and that's I think the. But I think the point is, going back to my own hometown up in Massachusetts, um, we had we had the the old chirpers back in the 1980s. Somebody just mentioned. Um, I think it was Chris Bell mentioned. It, other, other funding, the old uh, block grants,
5: mm-hmm.
12: the where if one town doesn't use it, another one can, and that kind of thing. We had trippers in, in 30 something intersections in a town that's only five miles square. Um, no, five square miles, sorry. Um, back in the early 80s. And I know that was a lot of that was because uh, Charlie Crawford did a lot of work on that on the on the Council on Disabilities in Arlington, Massachusetts back in those days. And um, but the thing is that yes, the courts are a viable way of doing it, but particularly I'd say in towns like maybe under fifty thousand, some of the smaller towns where so many of our listeners are actually from, there's so much you can do with by yourself if need be, with the with your local government.
5: Yes, you know,
12: And and the idea, you don't necessarily need to get accessible signals on every intersection in town, but the important ones. You know, if you've got, we have an intersection here near us now, for instance, that nobody's ever going to cross that's got a half a brain in their head. Because between the two streets that come together there, there are 16 lanes of traffic. So you can't even hear the, the thing on the other side of the street to begin with when you start. Um, but, but that's got an accessible signal, thanks to people like Pat and Charlie and Alpi Trilongo and uh, Phil Strong and people who all worked on, on Maryland at the time. Um, but for the smaller towns, there are so many ways. If you just let people know that you need something and you need it for particular areas, You've got so much more of a chance of getting it. If nothing else, if nothing else, in small town, they're really worried about the votes that they're going to get in their next election.
4: And that's Terry, I had mentioned earlier the importance of educating yourself as to uh, how accessible pedestrian signals work and why you need them so that you can explain to people how you will benefit. And that really, I think, is critical. And that type of stuff goes a long
12: way. It is. Yeah, and it's not just... It is, and I think that you just, you don't... I think we need to use the course when we absolutely need to, but I think that we can we can get a lot done, especially in small towns. We can get a lot done face-to-face.
2: And uh, quite a few of the towns to in Long Island in have been really successful, right, Lori? I'm
12: sorry? A lot of
2: the towns in Long Island have been quite successful,
4: uh, it's been interesting <laughs> the, the but, state but both- it, it, The state has been very proactive on Long Island. The <laughs> counties right. have been a little more challenging.
2: But to both of your points, you know, we all can talk about how it benefits us, but we really also do need to know how it works and be able to explain, you know, especially to to um, combat the the cost challenges and the and, you know it's well we have to put up new polls and it costs this much money to to have all of that knowledge behind us for the advocacy really does take the how it benefits us to three and four and five higher levels. And, and, you know, as Tori and, and Lori were speaking before, you know, the judge was paying rapt attention because all the advocacy had been done and all of those questions were already answered within the advocacy. So arming yourself both with, of course, how it benefits us, but also, you know, what it will cost your town or municipality, city, and how it actually works to combat those, you know, those counter arguments. Thank you, Terry. Any, um, any follow up question or comment?
12: No, I just wish everyone well and hope that uh, people will will heed our your, everyone's advice on it and find that it might not be nearly as difficult to get as it would be in, in a metropolis like New York or Washington, D.C. or something like that. But, you know, in the smaller towns, you might be much more successful than you expect. Absolutely. And this
2: this is an area of advocacy where our state and, and our local chapters can really get some traction. You know, we're always saying, you know, how do we get our membership more involved? Um, you know, on the more local levels. Well, this is a great way, you know, contact your, your chapter leaders, contact your state your state affiliate leaders and see if there's any advocacy going on, especially Illinois and Washington. Um, and hey, New York too, even though the fight is done, you can see, you know, what kind of follow-up stuff might be needed or what the next issue um, folks in New York are working on. Sheila, who's next?
3: Area code 682 ending in 597. You may unmute.
5: This is Calandra. Oh, Calandra, I'm so happy you made it in. Welcome. Yeah, finally. I think the numbers were reversed. And uh, I come to um, verify him. I think somebody made a mistake in putting them in last year's beat. Anyway, um, I wanted to bring up something. They mentioned the, um, the proper needs. I mean, the proper way to explain to people what sort of needs that you need, the pedestrian needs that you need to travel with. Um, could this, is there a way that anybody could suggest, because I'm a Braille user and I'm pretty sure everybody around the country is, is there a way that they could put some transportation stuff in Braille that way, most blind people, if they want to use a bus schedule or something like that, they can actually read it on their
2: own. Hmm. Tori, has there been any sort of um, advocacy for t- getting bus schedules and train schedules and things in um, Braille format and other formats?
9: Litigation, that doesn't mean there isn't advocacy. Um, I, I think that there's been... My memory is that there's been a lot more advocacy to get these schedules that are online accessible because then you can pull them up on your phone wherever you are, regardless of what's at the stop. Um, But I I don't know uh, enough about that.
2: Kalandra, I, I think that's a great point, um, but I think it's probably something that is, you know, like the uh, APS systems. It's going to have to come from the ground up, and, and you're going to have to have a lot of advocacy around it. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I, I would imagine a city like New York to have all of the bus stops sprawled out. I, I hate to say it, but it would, it would be a 20, 30-year project. It would be impossible to get oh, all God. those done. Uh, yeah, New York
5: 2022, that means it would take another 23 years to have all that situated.
2: Yeah, think about how many, you know, how many traffic lights there are in some in some areas in cities, you have two or three bus stops you know, right there on on each of those traffic lights. Sometimes you have bus stops that are in the middle of, of the street and at intersections. It, it would be mm-hmm. a huge undertaking. But it's something that you should definitely look into with your your local chapter and your state affiliate. But Thank I you so much for calling Yeah, in.
5: I thought of that. And they have what, what is called Embracing Brown and Hadley which is the call that I take sometimes
4: and I know that a lot of issues will be raised there. Absolutely.
5: I do also Lori wanted the, to say something. Go ahead, yeah, go.
4: I do know that the Westchester Council of the Blind is working on some accessibility issues around transportation, scheduling information, and bus schedule information. Um, so um, you could reach out to cindy and get information on how to contact the westchester council of the blind in new york you could actually probably google them because i believe they have their own website
2: awesome and yes yeah, send in um, um an email to community at ecb.org and cindy can give you some contact information as well thank you sheila who's up next roger peterson oh welcome roger
8: Roger. You might I might have not- to hit that. There you go. Here I am. Um, I just wanted to say, as uh, I, I consider myself one of the official old people on this uh, call, and uh, <laughs> I to say that occasionally you get you get to see an end point. Uh, recently, we changed the elevators in my condo building, and we didn't even mention Braille, and they came with Braille on the on the panels. And I gather that that's the only kind you can buy now. I think that's a case where we actually change the world. and I think um, I think eight uh, teller machines and banks are somewhat the same way. You can't buy one that isn't accessible anymore. Um, <clears throat> and the only other thing I would say is that i I just want to say that I have a, a tiny part in all this because I actually taught Lori to use a a VersaPoint embosser when she was 12 years old or something. Thank you. (laughs) That's
4: true. People like Roger and Terry, yes, that's right.
2: Well, congratulations for, you know, really getting, really getting a, a judgment and a decision that we can all be so proud of, and that will hopefully help municipalities around the country. Sheila, who's up next?
10: Meryl. Well, uh, welcome Ooh, hi, back, Meryl. Everybody. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Lori. Hi, Tori. Hi. Hello. I am so overjoyed, also as a transplanted New Yorker, (laughs) about this decision. I have tears in my eyes right now. And, um, you know, you were talking about Long Island. I grew up in in Nassau County and um, in in North Valley Stream. I don't know if North Valley Stream has any, (laughs) any APSs or not, but, you know, it wasn't good then. But I remember in Manhattan, I left in 1985. And, you know, there were some, but, but not many. So, and I know, speaking of people that have deceased, who would have been really proud of this, um, Josephine Defini. Ah, oh, yes. She was our chapter and our state president, and also Dorothy Matano mm-hmm. was our chapter and state president. They would have been so thrilled about this victory. So I want to congratulate you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Meryl.
10: You're
3: welcome. Mm All right, Sheila. Anthony, you have about 10 minutes and it's 508 area code ending in 613. You may unmute. Hello everybody. This is Jane Perry calling from
13: Salmos, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. And thank you very much for this presentation and congratulations on your winning of your lawsuit. Yes, that opens many doors for many people. As a transportation advocate here in my town, It took me 18 years to get an accessible pedestrian signal at a major intersection. And in this past year, it took six months, probably six months to six weeks to get a crosswalk that I was instrumental in implementing that's near a senior development housing that they put the audible signal in. So I'd also like to tell people that it is the face-to-face. We are now working on a couple other intersections in town and one is a major one that's going to be connecting, hopefully, the renovation of the bus station into the downtown village. And it's important to be involved not only with your town engineer, but also with transportation committees that I was on originally, and also traffic committees. And I want to hopefully, hopefully that we can continue this discussion. And I know at our national conference this past summer, there was a great transportation uh, track, and I hope we continue that in Omaha. And I hope we can look at roundabouts, which I distastefully ah. dislike. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, we are doing a Route 28 project, we're in the second phase, and they're going to now install two roundabouts. They do not work for people who are visually impaired or disabled. And my good friend who just retired. I have learned a lot from Miss Megan Robertson, who was the director oh, of the yes. Massachusetts Division for the Blind Orientation and Mobility. And I'm sure you probably know about her. And I miss her greatly. But she has taught me a lot about accessible pedestrian signals, not only the hybrid, which we are also installing a hot signal in our town on a state road. So thank you very much for opening the door. And I really, truly hope that people in other cities and towns and states take your lead and look towards the future, because not only with that, we have to make sure that the crosswalks don't have beautiful pictures of pink and green, because they don't work. We need to have the contrasting, what I call ladder back, and it's something that I would like to work on in Massachusetts. So, again, I thank you for this presentation, and hope we can continue this discussion and also discussion about roundabouts. Thank you, Anthony. Thank
4: Thank you you very much, and good luck in digging out up there.
5: Yes.
2: (laughs) <laughs>
4: and <laughs> I just wanted to
2: yeah, have 20 I just, of snow, by the way <laughs> I know God bless
4: Jean I just wanted to ask if you have anything specific to mention about roundabouts not to put you on the spot if you don't want to answer you don't have to yeah. ask it's, me the question again I'm sorry oh I'm sorry I was asking Jean who's a mobility instructor. I thought you said Jane. I'm sorry I'll I'm I'm mute again I'm sorry
7: uh, go God, Jean Yeah,
11: the roundabouts by their nature are not usually signalized. So they present uh, odd circular roadways where the sounds are not helpful always in making crossing decisions. And we did some studies in uh, how well drivers yield to blind pedestrians at roundabouts. And the results were not good. There are some techniques that uh, blind travelers can use that will improve yielding. Uh, but they remain a challenge. And so uh, the, I think that is something we have to keep paying attention to because they can turn an accessible intersection into a very difficult uh, intersection. Uh, where they replace your standard uh, streets. And as long as I've got the for a second, I do want to that uh, some of us uh, here in New York, mobility and specialists, Uh, continued collecting data on APS and LPI here in the city. And we are preparing to publish that data and the results of two studies showing the severe impact of uh, lead pedestrian intervals where APS are not installed. And hopefully once this gets in the literature, people will be able to uh, cite the research findings at court cases, which I hope there are many more of. And uh, this clearly shows uh, the need for accessible pedestrian signals. So uh, I would uh, ask you wish me good luck and uh, bet some good people working with me on that.
4: That's great news and Jean that is nice. um, uh, Jean and Janet Barlow as well as Donna Sauerberger and uh, some other people have done extensive work. Which, as blind people, we should be extremely thankful for. And it's so great, Jean, that you and others are continuing this work because without the information, we really don't have a leg to stand on and Absolutely. educating engineers about the needs and providing that data that's so critical.
7: This so is Chris, I can I just parts. add one thing, uh, and that Sorry. is that the, the, the U.S. Access Board is working on uh, trying to come up again with a public rights of way accessibility guidelines, Damn. and it's going to be critical for them to require accessible pedestrian signals, and critical to deal with the issue of roundabouts. And uh, I don't know when they're going to publish those, they've been working on them for eh, 25 years. Um, but, uh, stay tuned for that because that's something that ACB will, uh, will comment on.
2: Thanks. Absolutely. So, um, I wanted to ask Jean something and in, Jean, in asking Jean, I want to shout out my mobility instructor in New York. Her name is Carol Moog and she was absolutely amazing. And when I moved, I actually reached out to her for some, some, um, advice on roundabouts. I'm a guide dog user and she knows that I, I carry a telescope, telescopic cane, with me at all times, and she suggested for the roundabouts to not only have my dog, but to use the telescoping cane as a wave in front of me to alert drivers for yielding. Gene, what um What would you say to is that a is that a good technique?
11: Uh, yeah, we have. Uh, it's funny. I was talking to Lucas Frank at I about this yesterday on a phone call. Uh, yes, there are techniques that we've explored that are really good. Uh, One of them is to use a a body motion that moves you forward one safe step into the crosswalk and moving your cane in a way. This this did something like triple the amount of yielding from drivers when you uh, have a moving cane and your body moves as if you're entering to cross cars yield. And if you can detect those yields, it can make the crossing much, much safer. But that is, uh, there's many, many research findings now that the cane, maybe not just simply displayed, but the cane in movement and body movements (laughs) in driver behavior.
2: Yeah, she even suggested tapping and then waving it up, tapping and waving it up while I was waiting, looking for a yield. And it's hard. It is really hard to hear that yield in in a roundabout. But if you train yourself for a while, um, I would never suggest anyone trying it without a mobility instructor or somebody that you really trust with sight. You know, trying it out a few times before you, you you know, undergo it on on a usual pace on your own. All right, we have a couple minutes left. I want to remind everyone um, that Leadership Week, February 8th with Tuesday Topics, February 11th with Visibilities, and February 13th here on Sunday Edition. I have a new email address specifically for Sunday Edition. It is Sunday Edition AC at gmail.com if you ha- if there are any hints we'll take a few more after we go off air i will be back next week with another fascinating show and i hope everybody has a great week congratulations again to Lori, tory for all of the advocacy gene and and janet and everybody who's been involved thank you so much and we'll be back next sunday
1: been listening to sunday edition with anthony on acb radio mainstream for more information questions comments feedback suggestions etc please email celebration ac that's the word celebration with the letters ac at aol.com look forward to hearing from you and let's brunch again next sunday